Welcome to Lead Today with me, Kalina. Let's talk leadership. I don't know if you've ever read like um, Chris Voss's book, um, but there's a couple of tactics in there for like negotiating. Um, and so then I'd always like go back to the person and say, hey, is this something you've given up on? And like that's one of Chris Voss's techniques because people don't like to admit they've given up on something. And then that's when I, if I use that line, that's when I normally make a breakthrough. Yeah, that's a good one. I love, you know, I, I use this stuff from that book, Never Split the Difference. I yeah. use that every day. I mean, I've used it to negotiate Airbnbs. Like it's just, his tips are so practical. I think if you actually apply them in the situation, it's just tough. It's good in written communication. Sometimes I find it challenging to remember or to apply in real life. If I'm chatting with somebody in real time. Yeah. But- me and um funny enough like the, my co-host joe we tried out a couple of the tactics in person we went to a mcdonald's drive through once and we would like we just kept going around the drive through um to try and like negotiate our way to get like free things or whatever and we were trying out all these on the drive through people and that was quite a fun experience well what did they say what you what were you trying to get from the <laughs> well we went round um and there was, I can't remember, there was like something slightly wrong with Joe's order. And it wasn't enough, big enough of a deal to sort of like make a fuss out of. Um, but I thought like here's a good, you know, chance to sort of try things out. So we went back round and we sort of pulled up at the window. And the woman said, oh, how can I help you? And Joe said, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm about to make your day really, really difficult. And then she was like, oh, oh no. Um, he was like, oh yeah, I just want to let you know. It's nothing personal. I'm sorry if it makes your day difficult. And she's obviously expecting the worst. And then I think he just said like, you know, you, you got my order wrong. I was wondering if I could, you know, you could redo the order and give, give me like a free refund or something completely free. And she was sort of set up to expect a lot worse. And then when he asked for that, she was just like, oh yeah, I can do that. And he got it straight away. It was quite funny. Yeah, that expectancy for sure. That's a funny place to to use it, I guess. But I like I wouldn't necessarily think to use it in that context, but it makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I've never really tried it out on like hotels or anything yet. That seems like a pretty big uh big step. I'd probably get a bit nervous with that one. Yeah. Well, same same idea though. It's just if anything, and I think it's all in how you approach it and your tone of voice and all the little nuances, of course, like there, if there's an expectancy or if it's just, Hey, you know, this is my situation. This is how I'm feeling. What, what do you think? Then it sort of, I find works out better than if it's like, I'm the customer and you need to, you know, it's yeah, an attitude thing. No one wants to help you when you're that person. And like, I'm quite introverted. So trying out those tactics are like really difficult for me. Um, so someone I'm like coming to terms with it's like it's not the easiest if you're an introverted person either I can say I mean my mom would tell you that I'm super extroverted like as a kid I was just talking to everybody out of my stroller sort of thing it's still nerve-wracking for me too though like I I can probably talk with anybody to some degree but if you're asking something of someone or if it's sort of telling them they did something wrong then it's it can be confronting for me as well where it's sort of like okay how do I do this in the in the way where we're both on the same team approaching whatever the problem is versus putting that person down individually. It's just like, Hey, the meal or the hotel room or whatever, that's the problem. Not you as the front desk person or customer service person or 
So that's, that's a distinction that I find helps. Yeah. It's, it's quite like funny how I actually, you know, people say this to me all the time. I'm like really like shy. I'm quite introverted. Um, like my girlfriend would tell you like whenever we like go out and you've got to speak to like somebody on the desk or speak to a waiter or anything, she's the person who will do it because I'm just naturally quite shy and introverted. So it's quite funny how I actually talk to people for a living. Um, even though in my personal setting, I really don't like to talk to people. So it's, it's quite amazing how I'm a podcaster really. Well, how, so how did that happen? I mean, what's the story there? You're definitely not just a podcaster. I think you're a great podcaster and you're really, I think that introversion does something for you in the sense that you, you really pay attention to the people that are on your show. That's what I love. I think your questions are so thoughtful and also just down to earth and it's really a conversation, but it generates, I think very insightful ideas and wisdom out of the conversation. So you're doing something right. And I mean, you have, you have lots of great interviews that you've been doing for years. So what brought you to podcasting then if it's sort of against what you naturally feel you're accustomed to or would be drawn to? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, that's actually, I appreciate you saying that. That's actually one of the compliments sort of I, we see the most is the fact that we don't interrupt people or we like listen. Because um, you see a lot of podcasters out there, they'll interview a big name and they just want to talk over the top of them a lot or they'll cut in and interject and so we like to let someone finish their thought before cutting them off. Um, so I think that listening thing probably does come from me being introverted, I guess. But as far as how I got into it, I didn't really want sort of to get into it originally. Um, so me and Joe, who run the podcast, we used to, fresh out of university, we used to go on these really long drives. So like he would pick me up and we would just go out for a couple of hours in the evening and just drive to you know nowhere and just talk. And we'd maybe listen to podcasts or we'd read a book and then come back the next week and discuss the ideas in the book. And it just led to these like really long conversations we were having. And I remember we had this one conversation once about the education system, um, especially the early education system and why we think it's failing students. And um, that was like an hour long conversation and we finished. And I just remember turning to him and saying, which probably most best friends say to each other all the time, you know, they always say, oh, we should start a podcast. We're so funny. But we had that conversation. And I remember thinking if we recorded that conversation, that would have been a really good podcast. And I sort of just said it offhand. And, you know, we went back home and I was thinking into the night and I messaged him and I said, I can't stop thinking about that conversation. If we'd recorded that, that would have been amazing to listen back to. So I asked him if we could have a similar conversation again on that topic and if I could just record, not just for a podcast, but just to have if my own personal sort of library. And uh, we recorded this talk and sort of sat on it for a few weeks and I listened to it back. And at the time, Joe, he didn't really like, he's quite a private person. He doesn't like people knowing his business. Like he would never, you know, post pictures of himself online or anything. So I thought the chances of him saying yes to a podcast were slim to none. Um, but I begged him to let me upload this conversation to SoundCloud and just see what happened. We didn't give the podcast a name. We just put it up and a couple of people found him. We had a couple of nice messages. And then one night we were sat in 
a supermarket car park, so Tesco car park. And we were just talking and we were quite down. I was in a pretty bad place because I'd just come out of university doing a degree I didn't really enjoy. I didn't have any sort of career ahead of me. I was working in a supermarket at the time. Um, and I was just in that sort of rut where you wake up, go to work, come home, get ready to sleep, wake up. And I really wasn't enjoying life much. And we sort of sat there and we had this like quite heart to heart. And I said, I remember saying to him, there's got to be more to life than this. Because it was to the point where we talk and it was quite negative and I was quite down on life. And we agreed there had to be more. There had to be more freedom to go about our day. There had to be, you know, just more financially free, um, just more freedom. And so that's where the sort of Freedom Pack name came from. Um, because we sort of made a promise on that day that we were going to do everything to try and give ourselves more freedom and just live a more meaningful life. Um, and so that's how the, the sort of Freedom Pack started. Wow. It's such a, see, again, I think that's what's so compelling about not only this story, but the podcast is that it's, it's all, it's a series of small decisions and they're very human. And I think a lot of us struggle with this idea of, is this really it when we hit adulthood, right? It's like, okay, now what? I mean, we, we all sort of go through the motions of education and there isn't so much variation, but then once you're out, I mean, the way that you choose to live as an adult can vary substantially. And I think a lot of us hit that moment of really, is this it? We look around and it's kind of disappointing sometimes. <laughs> so I think that's huge that you've done something about it and, and not in a trivial way. I mean, you're having a lot of success, I would say. Um, what would you, what would you say has brought you to this place? I mean, it's been years, right? 2018. So you've got about four years under your belt. So yeah. what's kept you going along this pact and growing mind you not just doing it right you're not doing the motions you're certainly growing and expanding which is amazing to to witness yeah well originally like the first i think 20 20 episodes were just me and joe sort of interviewing each other um like we would pick a topic and i'd say i'm going to interview you about i don't know the education system or leadership or something and we would just interview each other and and, you know, we didn't really have a vision for where it was going, but we knew the types of conversations we wanted to be having. Um, and so beyond that, I guess what keeps me going now is this sort of freedom progress bar. Um, it's not 100%. It's nowhere near 100%. It's pretty good. Like, I, you know, enjoy my life a lot more than when we started it. Um, I make, you know, a lot more money than I did when we started it um, but does it allow me to be fully free has it taken me to that sort of freedom that I I wanted to get to not yet but I think it's certainly tracking that way um, so staying true to what we started out looking for that freedom and just being realistic about where we are on that progress bar like I said, we're nowhere near 100%. So that sort of keeps me going. And there are a million other things that keep me sort of motivated outside of that. Yeah, I like that progress bar, especially, I mean, four years, so many people, I think, start things. And then if they don't see results in a couple of episodes, it's like, okay, I'm not meant for this. And anything, not just podcasting, but we start things and then the motivation wanes because we don't see that 
sort of hockey stick accelerated growth. Um, so progress bar, how do you, how do you do that? Is it solely the money or what are sort of the indicators there? For me, I definitely have sort of this list of people I would love to interview that I think really, I mean, that's what I, I just started the show because I wanted to chat with amazing people. And I thought, wow, I'm having all these coaching sessions with great people as well. I wish others could kind of be a fly on the wall for those discussions. So that, that for me, so I mean, what is the progress bar? I mean, of course, money's one piece, right? To be able to be completely free from another job. What else? Yeah, that's a good question. Like, I mean, money's there. Like, that's a good thing. It's sort of a byproduct of it. That's not really, that's not why we start. And I think if anyone starts a podcast to make money, then you're probably in the wrong game because it takes a while to be able to make money from it. Um, and, you know, there's a, it's not a vast amount of money in podcasting at the moment, although I certainly think there will be soon. Um, but outside of money, again, it's just having a sort of meaning more than anything. I love the fact that I can go to bed last night and I can wake up in the morning and I can see people had watched the episode overnight and I wake up to these comments of people saying how it's affected them or how it relates to them or how it's helped them. And so that level of meaning is probably the most valuable thing in the world to me. Um, you know, you can you can make money from podcasting, but and there are ways you can do it. Like there are really cheap ways you can make money in podcasting, which is something I I, I really love to talk about because there are certain questions that you know you can ask a guest that are gonna you can clip to a four minute video and they're gonna be really popular. They're gonna get a lot of clicks and they're gonna make a lot of money. And I've been subject to this in the past. I've had, you know, maybe a sort of political commentator or a social commentator or a psychologist on who could speak about so many amazing things. And I've sort of been drawn towards the types of conversations that I know are going to get a lot of clicks, but don't necessarily make me feel good as a person afterwards. And so I've interviewed pretty big names sometimes and thought this is going to be amazing. And I found myself almost clip hunting. So asking a question thinking, I know this is going to you know, do a lot of good for the channel. And then afterwards, in the aftermath, I'm thinking I could have had a much deeper conversation or a much more impactful conversation. And now I try to think, you know, in 10, 20 years, when I'm looking back on sort of my back catalog of podcasting and I'm showing it to my kids, do I want to show them the types of conversations that are deep, that are meaningful, that help a lot of people? Or do I want to show them conversations where I'm touching on trivial social matters that are sort of relevant for the couple of weeks, if that? And so creating that level of meaning is what keeps me going rather than the money. Yeah, and... To your point, I think we can have both in a sense, right? I mean, if it is, if you are pursuing meaning, I think people do resonate with that clearly. I mean, your show does amazingly well and your interviews are very insightful. And I, I think people are drawn to that. So maybe they're drawn to the click clickbait for a week or so, but what sustains a video's views and really keeps people going back to it and or sharing it is when it's relevant in the long run. So I, I think I think it makes sense on a monetization front as well. I, I mean, sure. not that I'm the expert yet, but 
I think it makes sense to me. That's what I hope to do as well. Yeah, you've got to sort of find that perfect marriage between, you know, putting out the type of content that is going to attract viewers and sort of sustain the show and then putting out the type of content that is, that's important to you and sort of trying not to let one overwhelm the other. And so, yeah, I think there's a there's a place for both if you marry them perfectly. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. And I like that you're keeping to your own personal integrity by looking back at it and sort of doing taking stock a little bit and saying, okay, do I, does this pass my own standard of integrity, let's say. So I like that too. Yeah, like we've had opportunities to interview, you know, really polarizing people who I know would have done, you know, hundreds of thousands of views, but we've passed up on because I thought, that maybe doesn't align with the type of content I want to put out into the world. And we've had countless conversations with people and recorded conversations that when I've looked back on them, I just felt I didn't I didn't feel good with the conversation and the type of content and those never been released. We've got quite, you know, a few episodes that never been released because I wasn't it didn't sort of fulfill the sort of integrity and meaning I was looking for. And I felt a little bit cheap about the interview. So that integrity is everything. Um, because yeah, you want attract new people to your show. You want the views, you know, you want to propel the podcast forward, but your core audience, you want to maintain that integrity with. Um, and it's not to let those people dictate the type of conversations you're having, but I think you've got to at least hold yourself up to your own personal standards. Right, absolutely, which I think you do well, and that's a testament to it. I, I'm finding the same thing sometimes, even with my solo episodes, which really are just so I find them almost therapeutic. Honestly, sometimes it's just talking into this what seems like an abyss is so beneficial for me selfishly. Like it's just really healing somehow. But some of them I find okay. Am I just rambling off into nowhere for myself, or is this actually something that people want to? <laughs> or will benefit from in some way. And so I, I do my best to distinguish there as well. I don't know. I don't think I've withheld an interview with someone else yet, but that's good sort of, it's a good strategic or thoughtful idea for the future. If it doesn't feel right, I don't actually have to release it just because I promised them. Sometimes I feel like I've promised that person an interview, so I need to release it, but that's, I guess not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, unless you specifically sign a con like, like it's like a social contract but unless you sign a physical contract like you don't have to release anything and we've had occasions where we've recorded something and, and you know the guest has sort of maybe said something that I really not just disagree with but I really don't feel comfortable with and so we you know withhold the episode and then I get chased up by the sort of PA saying we can't find the episode anywhere where is it and I've just got to be open and honest with them um, there's only one time I've ever signed a legal contract to say I'd release something, but that wasn't the type of conversation where it was ever going to be at risk. Um, so I probably wouldn't sign any more contracts to say I'd release something, but it does happen if you like, if you don't release something, you're probably going to get chased up by their PA if they're paying attention. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, especially on a notable show, right? Makes sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, what? You've done so many great episodes. What episode stands out for you? Good. I, I'm I'm hesitant to say good or bad, but what 
what are some episodes that really stand out or sort of change the way you think? Because if anyone's checking out your show, there's so many. Yeah, there's been a few that have sort of meant different things to me on different levels. So like on a personal level, the when I interviewed um, UFC fighter George St. Pierre, that, that like fulfilled me on a personal level because he's been maybe like one of my top three heroes ever since I was a kid. And so that's just someone I never thought it was ever going to be possible for me to interview. Um, and the way that came about was quite weird, actually. Um, he actually DM'd me first, which I still can't believe to this day. Um, but that fulfilled me on a personal level. And I'll, I'm still not over the fact that that happened. Um, so that's crazy. But the types of conversations that have impacted me the most are probably the ones you don't expect. Um, so there are a lot of what I call like the lost episodes that were audio only because for the first maybe 60 or 70, we recorded on audio and we didn't do video and we didn't upload them to YouTube. And there's some really good, yeah, I mean, you're probably (laughs) experiencing a similar thing, but, um, yeah, so there's a lot of audio only ones and there's some great ones in there of, I think there's this one that stands out, Nick Yaris. This is a guy who spent 22 years on death row for a crime he never committed. Um, And that was someone I saw on Joe Rogan and it sort of compelled me to reach out and just learning about what freedom means from that perspective hit me in a whole new way because I've always thought freedom meant, you know, money. It meant being able to do what I want to do whenever I want to do it. And when I was speaking to someone who'd been on death death row for twenty two years and had, you know, was in solitary confinement and, you know, was forced to fight other prisoners to the death for the guards' entertainment and things like that. And he's just so happy now to live a normal life. Um, I'm pretty sure that the sort of court settlement he got out of it paid him probably a few million, but he lives this really simple life i see him now on instagram he just lives in a caravan by himself and sort of just drives it around and lives this really normal life and he just the way he talks about freedom on that very human level um is just it sort of takes my breath away so that one always sticks with me when i think that i'm not living a free life and i think it just gives me perspective on gratitude for the life i actually have that sometimes i take for granted Yeah, absolutely. I mean, most of us won't experience such an extreme thing in our lives. So that's what I, that's actually something I love about podcasts is that you can sort of transport similar to books, but in a very tangible way, because the person is right there in front of you speaking to to their lived experience. So it's such a, from a sensory perspective, especially if it's on YouTube, I think that's why people like that to your earlier point, right? It's like, I can see you, I can hear you. There's this connection that I have with you, even though I'm I'm just watching. I can't actually input anything in the moment, let's say, but, and wow, what a powerful story. Interesting. So he's living alone, traveling around. I wonder if the solitary confinement, and yeah, I wonder maybe, what, yeah. what lasting effects it would have to be so, so isolated for such a long time. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'd love maybe a sort of a psychologist to dig into that. That would probably be pretty interesting though. 
Yeah. Well, that's a that's an episode that I'd love to do, or I need. I'd like to look at more psychologists because I think right now there's so much changing in the way that even normal people are living day to day and going back to simplicity in so many ways, I think is useful when people are very much so in their heads, you know, like the, the advice right now is go outside, go to bed on time. It's like things that when I was six years old, you know, it's like you go out for recess and you make sure you have lunch and you go to you have your bedtime. I'm finding that simple advice like that is really what's being shared, but even by experts that are, you know, educated for, years and years and years but the the result is just hey do what you're doing as a as a kid essentially like put yourself in a routine take care of your basic human needs i don't know where i'm going with that but i i find it interesting where society is headed maybe i need a psychologist on the show to chat about that yeah have you have you ever had a psychologist on before no I had one lady, so I just booked this one author and she, her PR agent just sent me a bunch of other people, I guess, from her roster that she wants me to interview. So that also felt to our earlier point about like, okay, wait a second. I don't know. Like, I don't, I'm not necessarily going to interview someone just because you give me free stuff or like it. So it's not money. Right. But it's sort of this funny incentive of like, we'll send you their book or we'll send you their apparel or jewelry or whatever. And it's like, Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> like, yeah. if you, you know, I mean, if, if they're interesting and I want to have the conversation, sure. But it's it's sort of, it's not money, but it's this other, have you experienced sort of weird oh. ways to incentivize you that are not? Definitely. So because we've worked with some, you know, pretty big authors, we have sort of connections that, like I've got certain connections at, at HarperCollins and Penguin and, and um, I'm sure I'm missing a couple of other ones, but because we've built connections with certain um, publicists, they know obviously our email addresses, they know my home address. And so I'll get home some days and there'll be a parcel downstairs and it'll be from America. Um, I live in Wales in the UK for anyone who's who's listening. Um, and so that's a pretty big way to send a book, especially if it's like a hardback. And so sometimes I'll look on the front of the package and it'll say like it's cost them like $60 to send because they'll expense send the express and it'll just be a random book. I've expressed no interest in with a little piece of paper saying, um, you know, wanted to send this for you to read, check out, uh, please get in touch to, you know, schedule an interview. And because they've spent so much money on sending me a physical copy of the book, I almost feel obliged to say yes. And I, especially early on, I was doing that, but now I get them and I think, I didn't ask for you to send me the book, so I'm not going to let myself feel guilty about the money you've spent on it. But yeah, that happens quite a lot now, especially because they have our address. Oh, interesting. I didn't think of that. That's open <laughs> because that, I didn't think of that at all. I gave, well, it's a good thing I'm, I'm moving around, but I gave my address because one of the authors are sending a pre-release copy of the book. Huh? Well, careful who you give your address to then, I suppose. Wales yeah, I mean, is so... <laughs> Go ahead. I'm just because I know, I mean, I know, I, I don't mind getting free books. Like, it doesn't bother me at all. I'll take them all day. But yeah, it's that expectation of, of feeling like there has to be some sort of reciprocity that just doesn't sit well with me. Well, and I, you've, I think you've shared 
well in saying that, I mean, it's probably a marketing budget sort of thing, right? Where it's like, okay, we're going to send out this many copies to this many people, not to say you're not special individually, but a thought that it's probably a, some sort of distribution strategy where there's a budget set for it. And so it's not one individual, maybe it's not the author going, okay, I'm going to send my last copy to Lewis. I hope <laughs> like, I think it's interesting. Our mind sort of does that to us, right? Like it's sort of, we, we get so hyper-focused on, I don't know what we think the intention is. Like it's very easy to, to fortune tell in a way, or, or it's a very interesting thought. I have a lot of client sessions where, um, because I do some relationship coaching with couples that are veterans, um, usually with PTSD or first responders. So um, in the army or they can be ambulance drivers or police officers or whatever. Um, but I find that they, they often assume what their partner that their motives are, what the intentions are from their partner. And it's really interesting to see how I find we all do that all the time, just all the time. We assume that how we would do something is how someone else would or vice versa. Like I do this regularly. So it's an interesting sort of thing to point out, I think, or think about how. Yeah. Like, you know, you were speaking, you know, complete sense in logistically speaking. Yeah. They've got a marketing budget to send a couple of thousand copies internationally to people that they've shortlisted and they don't think twice about whether they get a response. But when it's there in my hand and I'm holding it and I'm thinking, wow, he sent me a copy, you know, oh, I should probably, and then I feel bad. But what, if you can step back and look at it objectively and you think, just think it out like anyone else would who's not in your position, then it's probably going to become a lot easier just to ignore that. I mean, yeah, that sounds right, but... <laughs> It's not as easy as that. Yeah, right? yeah. And well, and I mean, back to Chris Voss, right? Like it's so emotionally driven and it's these little nuances and we, we really are. That's why I find it so interesting chatting with people that would say they're logical or they're rational, you know, this this type of approach where it's like, I think we can rationalize anything or we can find the logic behind things, but we're often, I truly believe we're often driven by emotion. I, I really do. I, I don't, I'm not convinced yet oh. and everything i've read and experienced so far in my life i think people are emotionally driven and they'll find the facts or the logic to support whatever it is that they're deeply wanting or what they feel yeah for sure. like this um author reached out and he said you know i love the show i want to send you and joe a copy of my book and i was okay sure um and then he sent in he'd written this you know personalized letter to me and to Joe, separate letters. And that was really personal. And I remember I was I sent a picture to Joe and we were like, oh, you know, I feel like we should probably interview him. And we he was like, well, what's the book about? And it just didn't fit at all, really, what we were trying to do. And I thought I'd just be interviewing him for the sake of it, but he's written these letters and I just feel so bad. And... Um, in the end, we didn't go ahead. Like, they're both still up on my shelf. I actually didn't even pass it on to Joe yet. But, um, yeah, like, that emotion really takes over. And I, for a moment, I was going to let emotion sort of compromise my business. Like, that that's pretty crazy. Like, that, that's the power that emotion has. Oh, every, every day, I think. I mean, that's a beautiful, very specific example. I can... I can see how it gets in my everyday sort of all the time, even in relationships or negotiating situations. I mean, like you said, right. You show up to the McDonald's and it's this lady's preparing for the worst just from a few words. Right. So it's, 
yeah I think it's in every little thing that we do but (laughs) but that's what I'm obsessed with I'm obsessed with why people do what they do and how how it sort of manifests itself in their decisions and that's what I see daily leadership being and that's why I wanted to interview you I mean obviously the podcast is cool but it's also that via the podcast you're taking action every day to really live an intentional life and filled with meaning but it's intentional right like you're picking guests intentionally you're growing the show carefully I mean I do want to sort of circle back into monetization because you said you know it doesn't it certainly doesn't happen overnight so what's the approach there because I've spoken with some really big podcasters and I find that most of the money comes from an additional offering so if they have a course or something that they're offering on the side that's where it's coming from and then the other side is I guess sponsorships and ads which back to our point of integrity can really kind of degrade I've seen shows where I really liked them when they started out and then it's like the ad role is just so bizarre that I can't I can't listen (laughs) well yeah I mean me and Joe always laugh about this and it's interesting you bring that up because there's one massive, massive podcast. I'm not going to name the name, but I'm sure people who, you know, listen have experienced the same thing. But I remember I was listening to an episode once and he was talking about um, plant-based diets and how they're so good for you and how they're so great for you. And then halfway through, it cut to this ad roll and it was an ad for a meat subscription box. And I remember thinking, that doesn't line up with your episode at all. Like, you've just taken the first sponsorship that's come to you there. And I think that is massively, just a massive part of the integrity of monetization because we've had, um, you know, authors come to us and say, you know, could you read out an advert for my book? But, you know, the book, it just doesn't align with, you know, what we believe in or what we want to promote or we get products that... Um, want to pay us to, to you know do a 60 second ad rate but the product just doesn't align with everything we've ever talked about and so sometimes it's nice to think there's a quick cash grab on the table but then you think how is this going to pay off in the long term because your audience are going to notice that you know they're going to realize that you're not genuine they're going to maybe distance themselves from the show and in the in the long term in the long term it's going to impact you in a detrimental way so I think working with brands is really dangerous and that's why we don't really do it right now um just because I'm so skeptical of how it's gonna look from the outside in um so working with brands obviously a big part of podcasting if you can find a brand that you trust and you genuinely believe in then 100% go for it if that aligns with your message whatever that message is then working with brands is, a, is an amazing way to, to monetize. But I think a lot of people fall into the trap of just taking whatever brand wants to come to them and not considering how that's going to make them look and impact their business on the whole. Oh, for sure. And especially when there's similar offerings or, you know, you're selling just so many different food products and snacks and things where it's like do you really eat all these things every day I doubt you know do you really like them all you like you got a sample and now it's on show and I, I yeah I just wouldn't feel good about it but I understand completely that people want to monetize their effort because it's time and and so you know if you're not working if that's your full-time job there needs to be that's another thing that's so funny I think in a lot of spaces where there's free content where it's sort of like 
when you go to monetize it, people have this criticism as well. And it's like, well, but how am I supposed, if I'm doing this 40 hours a week, how should I go about it? Right. What's the, what is the virtuous way to go about making a living when I'm sharing so many hours of effort and consideration, not just interviewing, but outside, right? Like so much research goes into and planning to get somebody to this point on a show, actually talking and recording in real time. So it's like, I mean, how do you go about it that you feel is in integrity? Because I think it's a, it's a really, that's where people get caught up and stuck in anything. It's like, this is my hobby or I really love doing this. Okay. I want to do more of it. Okay. If I'm going to spend more time on it, then I need to make some amount of money so that I can spend the time. How do I go about doing that in an, in a genuine and authentic way? So how do you do that? Because you haven't sold out. I think your show is really genuine. Yeah, we appreciate that. Like that's something that's so important to us because we held off on, I think that the, so the, the, the best way and the quickest and probably the most effective way to make money is through the YouTube partner program. It'll never be as easy as that because YouTube literally goes out, sort of gets the sponsors for you and puts them, you don't even have to do any of the work. They just appear on your, your videos, right? The, the ads. Okay, you don't get a say in what ads they are, but people know that they are. People know the score. They know that those ads aren't chosen by you, and so that's probably the quickest way to do it. But when we first hit that mark to join the YouTube Partner Program, we were so scared to pull the trigger because of just what people would think. And we've had loads and loads of comments in the past of amazing interview, but it was interrupted with ads. And we were just sat there and thinking, well, at this point, what do you want us to do? We It takes hours to acquire a guest. It takes even longer to research the guest. It takes, you know, an hour, two hours to record, a couple more hours editing. That's so much of your free time you're sinking into this. And yeah, in an ideal world, I you'd love to be able to just produce content that's completely free, that is completely ethical, Everyone's out. Everyone's benefiting from it. But going back to what we we're saying, if we think about it logistically, it just it can't sustain itself. That level of work that's required, unless there's money coming in. And so we got to the point where you know we were both working two jobs. I was working two jobs. Joe was working two jobs, and we had the podcast on top of that. And we were doing it for com- completely free, even though we could be making money because. We had this idea that we were going to be like super ethical and, you know, so, you know, so like the golden boys of it. And it got to a point where we said we have to switch the monetization on because at this point we're seeing no return on investment and it just can't go on like this because we were running ourselves into the ground and we turned that monetization on. And you can choose to which extent you turn it on. You can choose if there's pre-roll, if there's mid-roll, if there's little banners. And we were the point financially where just to kick started, we turned it all on. We turned it all on and we were getting, you know, so many emails and comments about how it's ruining the episodes and so we crafted this little message that we'd reply to comments. If someone said it's too many ads, we crafted this message saying I said something along the lines of thank you so much for, for taking the time to listen to the show. We really appreciate it. Unfortunately you know, to sustain the podcast, we need money coming in. And this is the only way we can do this right now. And then we offered them an alternative. We said, there are there is a free version of the show. 
well, YouTube is free, but there's an ad-free version of the show on Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, Google. If the ads really bother you that much, then you can listen to the audio platform. But people then start to realize when you're running something that is, you know, I wouldn't say we're a big podcast, but, you know, we, we do all right, that there has to be money coming in. And so as long as you don't sell out, really, and start promoting the wrong products. I think people are smart enough, especially when you're in the space that we're in and that you're in. Your audience are you know, smart enough to realize you need money coming in. So they're going to respect the decision at the end of the day. And I think, you know, if you do it that way, then it's ethical. Yeah, completely. And I like that there are alternatives for sure. And I know other podcasters that'll even sell sort of a membership to be ad free if that's what you want. So yeah, I think consumers do get it. And I mean, if you're watching, I mean, you pay for Netflix. It's just, I think it is becoming also more mainstream. I do like though that you sort of put it on YouTube to to handle it for you in a sense. That's really great. Although you have to hit some mile, I think subscriber and view time milestones and then you can go ahead. But um, yeah, it's a thousand, a thousand subscribers and 4,000 watch hours in the last 12 months or something. So like that seems like a big number, but once you start releasing episodes every week, it 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 is realistic. Like you can definitely hit that. And I'm I'm hundred percent sure that you're gonna hit that quicker than you think you're gonna hit that. Like you are going to hit that. I know you are. Um, oh yeah, I th- I think that was the biggest. I just I'm using actually oh, headliner. I'm using headliner, and it just I mean okay, my personal interviews aren't on video, which I know I should, I know, but, <laughs> but it's just so convenient. As I told you, it's just so convenient to sit there and talk into the void. Um, but yeah, I think with uploading things, even just one interview gets so many thousand hours. So for anybody feeling that it's a huge mountain, I think it's just continuing on as you've done. I mean, so amazingly actually like some of your interviews are just what's the biggest surprise I guess like for me I, I've been shocked at how people really are approachable like so many people I think starting a podcast it's like okay what there's just so many elements to think about when starting but really the booking of guests is actually probably the most fun for me at least I mean it's scary in some sense nerve-wracking sometimes but it's sort of this like kind of like the books your example with getting a book on your doorstep it's sort of like that i mean you have to be i think strategic about who you're sending the book to yeah but i mean what have you noticed about outreach because you've as you've already shared you've landed some really awesome and notable guests yeah i think well it is a lot easier than people think and it's a lot easier than i ever thought it would be and you know you you go to someone's instagram and you see the little email tab and when you're just um you know when you're just a member of the audience you think they're never going to reply to that email that's public every millions of people probably email that email but they actually really do like i've i've got a lot of no's from really really famous people um and you just think how did i reach that person like i think in before we even got a video we had a no from taylor swift's publicist and she's like a massive deal and it's like why did they even take the time to sort of reach back out to us but we reached the right person we just weren't in the position to actually get the yes and you never think that's going to be possible and I think 99% of it is just crafting the perfect message 
Um, and so we've spent, like you said, four years crafting this email. And I think we've got it down to sort of like a sweet science now. And so we go in, um, I address the person, the guest, whether I go through a publicist, whether I'm emailing Harper Collins about, I don't know, Jordan Peterson or something, I'll say dear Jordan, because they'll know why I'm, you know, who I'm trying to reach. I don't really say to whom it may concern. I just, you know, they'll know. And so I introduce the show in one sentence. I say, you know, we're inviting, we're reaching out to invite you uh, to be a guest on the podcast. There's a top 10 personal development podcast in the UK. And I leave it there because they don't want to be bored with the details. They don't want like a really long email about your show. And then secondly, and the most important part of reaching out to someone is the social proof. Like that is pretty much the be all and end all. So I'll say most, and I won't, beat around the bush, I'll just get to it. I'll say most notably we've interviewed and I'll list five or six notable people that they've probably heard of or if they haven't heard of them, I'll explain in brackets why they should have heard of them. I'll say, you know, most inter- we've interviewed George St. Pierre, brackets, UFC Hall of Famer. So even if they don't know who it is, they know, you know, why they should know who it is. And so that social proof is everything. And as soon as I started including that, that's you know where you get and you can tailor it so if you're interviewing a psychologist you can you know make it academic so if you're approaching an actor you can make it people in the public eye and that social proof is pretty much everything and then after that i think it's about just getting in and out of their emails as quick as possible because in my experience the longer the communication goes on the it's increasingly likely to break down so you get the yes, you organize and you just get out and you keep the emails short and sweet because if you're boring them or it's taking too long, the process, they're going to give up. There's going to, someone else is going to come along. So I get in, I get out and uh, that's pretty much my process with approaching people. And I would say build relationships with publicists. So go on the Amazon upcoming releases in personal development Look who's got a book coming out in the next three months. Look who the publisher is. Email every publicist from that publisher. Just copy them into the same email. And then if they gave you that guest, you go back to them the next day and say, hey, Lewis here from the podcast. We worked together when I interviewed Danny Trejo. Um, I'd love if you could help me in organizing an interview with. And then it gets to the point where they trust you. And you just build that relationship. And now I know if there's HarperCollins book coming out that I have a well, 100% chance of getting an answer from them because I have personal relationships with the publicists. So that's a massive part of getting guests is building relationships and networking. Yeah, which I think dissuades people sometimes because the word networking feels whatever it feels. But really, it's like you've said, it's these small moves of just getting getting going and really a bunch you send it to a bunch of people right you don't just pick one publicist from harper collins and kind of sit there and pray you're really spreading spreading the idea across relevant parties in the company and i think that's important sometimes it seems like it's just you send one email and it should work again it's sort of this persistence or creativity as well like you really show that you're creative too right to keep crafting that email differently and it really does take only a couple of people i mean I've had some great people on the show, but it started at, you know, there was a point where I had no one on the show and it just, that list of people that you've interviewed grows as you 
ask and people take a chance on you as well. I've certainly been lucky in some sense, at least my experience that people will say yes. (laughs) And you're going to get so many no's. Like I get infinite, infinitely more no's than I get yeses on a daily basis. I get no's all the time. And I love, I love getting those emails back. I love getting those. Like me and Joe always say at the end of the day, I'll text him and I say, who said no to you today? And he'll say, who said no? And we'll see who's got the best no of the day. And the way I think about it is if I, if I land an interview with someone, um, I know roughly what that's going to be worth in terms of money. So I don't know, let's just say like a yes is going to equate to a hundred pounds. And typically for every one yes I get I get nine no's and so I can like divide that to the point where in my head I'm thinking that every no is worth 10 pound so like those no's are like they sort of encourage me to keep going so I'm like okay that no's worth 10 pound that no's worth 10 pound and it adds up until you get that yes so that's the way I think about getting no's now which has really helped me like it doesn't discourage me in the slightest it just I just love it that's a cool way to look at it, that they're also worth something. Yeah. I think that the... was Tim Ferriss. Like, that's not my own idea. I think that's from the, f- I'm not sure if it's from the four hour work week, but it's definitely a Tim Ferriss uh, idea. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you calling that out too. I mean, his stuff's great. He's got some really good books and sure. his show is also pretty cool. Um, I do just want to ask you personally about Wales because I actually, um, I've been, I've camped in Wales. It's a really, oh, really? cool place, but yeah, yeah. I, uh, when I was younger, I don't actually remember exactly where I even was, but I camped on a hill in Wales as a kid. <laughs> many, um, many hills. Yeah, yeah. But so what, I mean, what's it, I guess, what's it like or what stands out or what do you love about it? I think it's such an underrepresented, I mean, people know England, right? And they know Scotland and they know Ireland, but Wales is such a cool, unique place. And I think it gets sort of, I don't want to say left out, but somehow it doesn't get the representation it deserves. So, <laughs> Oh, it definitely to... gets left out. It definitely gets left out. And that, it makes me so happy you've asked this question. I, I, I love this because internationally speaking, I don't think many people, well, I, obviously they do, but they're, it's surprising how many people have just never heard of the country, even though it's in the UK. And like you said, everyone thinks England, Scotland, Ireland, but there's actually four countries that make up the UK. Like Wales is a, its own country. And when it, I've had so many guests on from America and they ask where I'm from and I say Wales and they say, oh, in England. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no, um, no, it's amazing you said that. Like it's this really beautiful country. Um, and, and what I love about it is it's just really scenic and like I take it for granted because I live here and the weather's not great. That's like what everyone says about Wales. Like it rains a lot, but some days I'll go for like a hike or we'll, you know, there's so many castles in Wales. Like I live right now within the driving distance to multiple castles, which are like really cool, but I've just grown up around that. Like that's just normal to me. Um, But sometimes when I go to, you know, there's a castle that's, 20 minutes up the road from me but here and I'll go there and I've been there millions of times since I was a kid but I'll walk around these castle grounds and I'll think to myself wow there's like some people in some countries who would actually consider this like a really cool holiday or to be able to see this as like a really like really cool experience but I've just grown up here and it's I've grown accustomed to it so I love it um and yeah it doesn't get the sort of recognition it deserves 
Um, I think we only have a population of 3.6 million or something. So not really a big country, but there's so much history. And I think we have a pretty cool flag as well. Like we have a dragon on our flag. That's pretty cool, right? Yeah. Um, So a little bit more engaging than the English cross anyway, um, I think. But um, no, it is a beautiful place. And like you said, so many hills there's so many mountains there's so many rivers and lakes and just beautiful scenery and it does make me sad that more people than you think don't don't even know it exists or that it's just a part of england so it makes me really happy you asked that question <laughs> yeah well i know my stepfather um was or is i mean he's still alive but he, he's welsh so his parents are from swansea area and we swansea, yeah. yeah and we were we were there um so I don't know that I would have known about it other than the fact that he was Welsh so I mean that that helped for sure and then you know the guy from Notting Hill the movie with Hugh Grant you know oh, the Reece, one Reciphons <laughs> I think you know the guy <laughs> he's he's in his underwear and he's he's like <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah he's he's a pretty famous Welsh actor I yeah, think yeah yeah Some, somewhat there's some pretty fa- you know there's some pretty famous people out of Wales that sort of just on the global scale sort of become English or become British and like um Batman like Christian Bales from was born in Wales um everyone just assumed, yeah um you know there's so many people that are secretly Welsh almost and so many music artists and things that just sort of get turned into English or British um but yeah I like to identify as Welsh rather than British that's just my thing well, hey, it's a unique place. And I think what you've built is also super unique. And I'm just really grateful for you being here and also being so friendly and helpful behind the scenes as well, Lewis. I feel grateful to to know you and get to collaborate with you in any way. I mean, I think you're doing wonderful work. Oh, I, I really appreciate that. And I, you know, I love what you're doing with the podcast. I love the the concept. I love the questions. I just I love this idea of like leadership's always been a topic that's greatly you know, being of interest to me. Like I love learning about, I've got, you know, a couple of books on leadership. I've done a couple of episodes on leadership. So I I really enjoy your podcast for that reason as well. Well, thanks. Yeah. I mean, what would you define leadership as? Because I think it's sort of similar to the word networking where sometimes, you know, it's like, I'm going to be a leader and it just feels like, sometimes I sit there and I go, oh, I don't know if I even want, I, I don't know that I even like the, <laughs> the name. I have this funny relationship now with even the word, because it's just, it's got this certain connotation normally that I'd really like to redefine. So, I mean, that's the whole point. And I think that you do that because you take these little steps. You really are a leader because you stay in your integrity. That's what, that's to me, self-leadership is having, knowing what your values are, knowing what your standards of integrity are, and then living them. And I think you're such a living example of that all the, t- at least my experience of you, you're so in integrity. So what do you think it takes or what does it even mean to you? Because I think the word, I, I have a hard time with the word leadership <laughs> because I don't yeah. like the conventional. I don't like the way people think of it conventionally, quite frankly. Yeah. I think um, there's a book behind me by, uh, Simon Sinek I think it's called leaders eat last and um, the whole idea is that leadership is a choice not a rank and you know this is the main difference between a manager and a, and a leader to me in life someone who manages is the type of person who pulls rank a leader you know is the type of person who 
does it out of choice. And so when we had, it was, a, it was a great episode on the show that Joe did with General Stanley McChrystal. He's a really decorated um, American general. And he speaks highly of this admiral called Horatio Nelson from the Battle of Trafalgar. And it's this idea that leadership is more of instilling an environment for people rather than telling them what to do. And in this battle, the uh, the admiral was wounded and died right at the start of the battle. So he wasn't actually around to give any orders in the battle. And so, but it's still regarded as his greatest victory as a leader. And that's all on the idea that he created an environment for his captains. He created a, a nature for his soldiers. He instilled things in them like resilience, like a robust nature. And he sort of led in that way by creating this environment. And so obviously they went on to win the battle and he didn't actually need to be alive at all to be an effective leader in that situation. Because all the leadership was done in the build-up. It was creating these people through this environment and instilling this culture of resilience. And so that is like a really beautiful story to me because that just shows that leadership isn't saying, you know, um, attack this way or, you know, or, you know, hold fire or, you know, giving these orders. It's just instilling people and, and building them to be the best version of themselves so that they can go on then to be effective. And that is what I think leadership is about. And I think that story there is beautiful. The fact that he wasn't alive for 99% of the battle, but it's known as his greatest victory as a leader. I think that is like the perfect way to sum up leadership for me. That's so beautiful. That's such a beautiful story. And I think that while you might not be in war, I think you do that as well in the way that you interview people because you do empower them to show up in the interview as their most effective and, and best selves. So I, I certainly think you're doing that in the way that you you interview your guests. I certainly try to, at least. <laughs> yeah, hey, and it's a craft, right? Like we, it's, it's, I don't think it's a stagnant thing. I mean, it's a skill. So it takes years. And even then it lives on, like you, this big piece of it is legacy. That's why I'm writing a whole book on crafting your legacy, because I think it's acting now with the future and with your legacy in mind. That's why you've said, you know, I want my kids to appreciate my episodes. It's living on beyond your time. And your story just now also exemplifies that, right? It's like, it needs to live on beyond you in the hearts and minds of others. And I think that's such a powerful point too. Yeah. That's actually, it's interesting you say that because a couple of years ago, I really struggled with the concept of mortality like it used to really put me in a dark place and I remember being at a point where I thought like I was in this place where I just didn't have much motivation at all for anything because I thought well what's the point in the grand scheme of things you know if I'm gonna die but this idea like you said there about creating this legacy and 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 one day when I'm gone, I'm going to leave behind this back catalogue of what I believe to be really meaningful conversations. And if I can just leave that behind for the world, then that gives me so much meaning to live in the now. So I love that idea of creating something that will live on 
beyond yourself and that, that that makes me wake up in the morning because before the podcast and I was just working in a supermarket and I wasn't providing any value to anyone I had very limited motivation and just having something to leave behind or putting something out into the world or that old cliche of wanting to leave the world in a better place than you found it that just that helps me wake up in the morning now and I think that's the most beautiful thing so I really love that concept yeah thank you and I think you're doing it well it, it, truly because you're being mindful about it you can put especially as a creator right you can put out stuff but you're not putting out stuff you're carefully curating that stuff so I think what there's also a piece about I, I really admire that you stick to your standards of integrity that you stick with your values I think it's a huge piece too and Lewis, thank you so much for your time. I could keep you probably another hour, but I do want to be mindful of our of our minutes. So thank you so much again for being on the show and for your help along the way as well. You've just been such a such a guiding light. And Max is here. Perfect timing. <laughs> he knows. He always knows when I'm wrapping up with a client or a show. He just shows up. He always knows. Ready for your attention. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that too. You're right. He's like, okay, it's time for a walk. <laughs> no it's been an absolute pleasure i really appreciate it like like we talked at the top or before we started rolling i don't i've never really done interviews because i have a little bit of imposter syndrome yeah. on you know the value i think i can give to people but you know the way you conduct your interviews is it's just so natural that i don't even feel like we've been in the middle of a interview it feels like a conversation um and so that you've been a, an amazing host you're really good at what you do and thank you for making it such a, a comfortable experience rather than you know the impending doom I probably was expecting. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I think, well, you do it too, actually. I have to say it, it comes, that's where the introversion you mentioned before, sort of that being, I think it's a superpower. I think it's your absolute superpower and interviewers that to your earlier point, right? It's if you're, if you want to talk the whole time, you're by definition, not interviewing. So, so I yeah. think having that exploratory or curiosity that willingness to listen is exactly what generates those insights of course with powerful questions and I really appreciate you recognizing that in me I think for me my background is in coaching so I spend the whole hour that I have with the client I maybe speak 10% of it if I'm doing a good job if I'm talking too much I'm actually doing it wrong so that was really hard for me to control actually when I started because I like talking I really like talking um, but I recognize very quickly with the coaching platform or I guess strategy the way that you go through coaching calls I mean the person needs to generate their insights on their own because that's when they'll commit and follow through on them most strongly so the newest insights that they have the most meaning they can generate is from themselves via my questions so it's that was really tough for me to hone in on actually yeah I can imagine well, <laughs> because I'm the one that would love to chat the whole time <laughs> so I think you've got a leg up actually if your natural tendency is to sort of sit back and analyze and introspectively consider what's going on yeah well let me give you the opportunity i one thing i love asking people um is like i'm a big believer in this whole like having a big why of having a big purpose because there's a story i heard a long time ago about um well a boxer so there was this boxer um named buster douglas and he was fighting mike tyson and he was like 33 to 1 odds to win so it was literally impossible right so it was supposed to be just this fight where Mike Tyson would come out, get a big knockout, just a Mike Tyson party. And two days before the fight, 
um, his opponent, Buster Douglas's mother passed away. And during the fight, he got knocked down. He almost got knocked out. And he just came back out of nowhere. And he knocked Mike Tyson out. And they said to him after, like, how did you get the resilience to sort of pick yourself up off the floor, keep going, defy the odds? Like, how did that happen? And he said, well, my mother died two days before the fight. And she was telling everyone before she died that I was going to beat Mike Tyson. I was going to knock out Mike Tyson. And once she died, I just had this massive why. I had this big purpose. I had to do it. And my reason for doing it to sort of fulfill my promise to my mother who died was stronger than my opponent. So my why outweighed my opponent. And so I'm a big believer in having a strong why. And so that's why, like, before we wrap up, I'd love to ask you, what is your why? Lewis, even in a show where it's supposed to be about you, <laughs> I shouldn't be surprised. Oh, well, you said you so you've got like me in tears, Lewis. Like, <laughs> I mean, I think, why do I do these shows? Because there were so many conversations that I didn't, they, they die out and you have a coaching call and at the end it's done and it's gone forever. Like you've said about, you know, some of the interviews that never see the light of day. And I just, I was gaining so much benefit. And I thought of all the conversations that are happening amongst powerful people or notable people. Um, and like we've identified in this interview, it's so easy to reach out. It actually is. So the fact that I can connect bring that down to earth maybe draw up some new insights and have that be available to people that's the service based why I guess but my own why is I think this insatiable curiosity like as a kid I always I just wanted I actually always wanted to know why about people human nature so for me I I have this insatiable curiosity about why are people living the way they are? Why are they where they're at? Where are they headed? Why do they do things the way that they do? Like I, body language, tone of voice, word choice, every, I, motivation, I've been obsessed. And people that are doing that successfully in the real world and playing the game of life, if you will, will successfully, I'm, I'm fascinated by the micro shifts that they make in order to be able to do that because everybody's got 24 hours. We all know people are generally, it's not that successful people are way more competent or that, you know, I, I think people that work in a grocery store actually are sometimes harder working than people that are making millions. It depends how they're making them. So I was just fascinated by what makes us similar and what are these tiny shifts that people can make to really change their life sort of like how you have right going deciding one day what does it take to make that one decision that one day to change the trajectory of your life that fascinates me completely why do some people go after their dreams like for me it's just this insatiable curiosity why why is somebody sitting in a parking lot listening to this right now and not making their own show versus we're here actually doing this and then putting it out. What are those small little shifts that people have to make so that they can pursue their dreams? Because I've watched people in my family work because it's a, it's a duty and they do a very, very good job and they're successful and they make money, but their souls, they've wasted their, their whole adult lives working. So, I mean, this is not a concise answer, but I think I grew up around people that were very good at making money to some degree and providing, but we're just their soul wasn't in it. And I just, I could not, 
I could not do that myself. I had to find something that that allowed me to question and allowed me to connect with cool people. And the freedom is a big piece too. So I don't, I don't know that there's this one. I feel like I've been convoluted in my answer because it's, there are a few different prongs of it driving me. Like, it's not like somebody told me one day, like I believe in you and now I'm doing it. it I mean, people have said that, but I don't know. I don't know, Lewis. Is that an answer? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a complex question and, yeah it's never just like one why is it like you this is it's a complex and um yeah there's so many things that go into it and there are a lot of parallels between your answer and mine and so you know when i'm it's 12 o'clock at night and i need to go to bed and i've got a full podcast to edit and i just really don't want to do it and i want to go to bed like i always remind myself of my why and that just keeps me going and so i just hope that people do the same thing and that's why i hope like you'll continue with this and when it's like feels like you know you'd rather be doing something else so you really don't want to do that today or it's getting a hard work just hope that you always sort of remember that why and you just keep reminding yourself of that story because i think that is just the best kind of fuel for going forward yeah i mean what would you say you do you have it in a concise what do you tell yourself in that moment at 11 p.m when it <laughs> when you really don't want to edit the the podcast because it's I, like yeah, I just think back to that. I think back to that car park conversation I had with Joe when we were, I don't know, old, we were 20 something, 20, 20 years old, 21. And um, I remember thinking, I just think I don't want to disappoint that version of myself. Like that person who had, who was going through those hard times and he really didn't like waking up in the morning some days and he felt like he was just existing and coasting through life. And now I'm in this opportunity where I can speak to so many great people and I have all this meaning. And I think like I owe it to that former version of myself to capitalize on that why. And I always sort of remind myself that I'm doing this to create a more meaningful life, um, to create better opportunities for me, my family, my friends. Um, I just... I just remind myself of all of that and that gets me really emotional and as we talked at the top like emotions are a really powerful thing so as soon as I start pulling on those emotions that sort of like brings me back oh what a cool way to go full circle in a sense yeah because what we think about obviously triggers emotions right so it totally makes sense to put ourselves in that that state yeah, I guess, see, but it's interesting because you ask, why are you doing this? And I don't necessarily have a clear answer, but if you ask me, who, who are you doing it for? That's, that's sort of what you've answered right now, which is okay. My past self and my future self and my kids and my, like, it's very much so outside of yourself. You're not saying it because, okay, I'm doing it so that I can get on the cover of Forbes, right. Or I can be on the cover of whatever you're, you're doing it for a part of yourself that wants to see you succeed and is aspirational. And then you're also seeing it for the people around you. So it's really interesting because your why somehow actually translate a lot, translates a lot to who in a sense. Oh, absolutely. Like I'm experiencing this at the moment. I, um, I've been given this really good opportunity. Um, I, I don't like saying like the name or whatever, but I've been invited to, um, go to Westminster to interview um, pretty or former high up government official in the UK um, 
and it's like a really big opportunity and they've invited me down to Westminster personally. We're going to record it in person. I'm going to take a videographer down and it's like a really, you know, it's a pretty big name in the UK, this person. And it'll be quite, a, you know, an exclusive and it has, comes with a lot of opportunity. It's a type of name that's probably going to get picked up by a few like news outlets and things. So that's really exciting. And my mother is just extremely excited about it. It's like, because it's like, she's not into the sort of personal development world. So like if I tell her I've had Brett Weinstein, like she'll watch it. My parents watch everything I do. And like they'll, even if they're not interested, they'll watch it. But when they, when I told her about this opportunity and that I was invited down to Westminster, you know, parliament and, and they were, they were really excited. And I said, well, mom, I said, don't, I said, keep a secret now because if it doesn't happen, then I'll look, you know, I'll look a bit silly. Um, and I was, I went out, in the car with her yesterday for a drive and she looked at me and she said I've told people and I was like man <laughs> I was like why have you gone telling people because if it falls apart now I look stupid and she said oh, I was just so excited about it and I was like you're in that again like obviously this is I do you know a lot of this comes with benefits for myself but just seeing it have an effect on people around me as well like that gives me a lot of purpose to keep going. So it's interesting you've said that it becomes who you're doing it for as well. Yeah, which is so powerful because you know what? It, it almost feels like it doesn't matter what age you you get to. It's like seeing that, seeing that your parents are proud of you is such a universal. I think we all, whether we admit it or not, are striving for that in some degree. Even if we don't meet our, let's say we don't know our parents, or a parent passes away and they're not there to actually see it. But I think. I think there's something so human about that, that we want, because again, legacy and, and there's this really strong thread there of making your parents proud and having them be, having them, yeah, want to brag about you at the, with their friends, right? <laughs> and it's not, not to be superficial, but it's because you want them to, you, you want them to be, I guess, holding you in that esteemed place it's there's something very gratifying about that versus just somebody writing a comment on YouTube that's gratifying too but there's something when your mom or your dad or a family member you're like for me my grandparents always supported me and and looked up to what I'm doing and I remember my grandfather who barely speaks English by the way so it's not like you know it's not like he really gets the whole online marketplace either he's in his 80s but watching me on stage at a talk I did at UCLA he just he, he goes you look like Oprah. Like you just look so composed. I'm going, what, you know, first of all, you know, Oprah, <laughs> but just, but the, the way his eyes lit up seeing me there, I felt like I did right by him. And that was something that, yeah, the, the money was such a secondary benefit to hit the joy, I think in his face. So I totally get that. And congrats, by the way, on that very cryptic, exciting development that's coming up hopefully soon. Yeah. No, that's a beautiful story you just said. I like I love that. Like and I didn't realise how much that meant to me because a couple of years ago I probably would have said like I don't really seek my parents' approval at all. Like uh, you know, we never had like a emotional relationship to that extent. And so I was always like, Yeah, it probably doesn't mean a lot. I don't really care if they think the podcast is good or bad or whatever. And I got a message on Instagram one day to the podcast account and some listener of our show said um said oh I've met your dad today and I was like what and um they said well they said I was in work um talking about the 
talking about a podcast I listened to, which was like one I did with um, a military guy from the UK. And he said, your dad sort of came up to me and said, that's my son's podcast. And I was like, that was weird to me at the start um, <laughs> because they worked together. And then he sort of said, I was like, that's so weird that like, what a coincidence. And he said, oh, your dad's, he said, I said something to me like, oh, I don't know if he said, says it to you, but your dad's really proud of you. And I was like, like that was at the time I was thinking, wow, like I, even though I wasn't hearing it from him, I was hearing it like indirectly. I was like, damn, that's cool. Yeah, it's a funny, it's a funny moment because I think, especially when we hit our teens, there's something where it's like, I don't care what you say. There's this rebellious phase, right? I can do it on my own. I'm fine. I'm whatever, like, leave me alone. There's this whole phase of that when we hit our teenage years. And then there's something that comes full circle where it's like your parents really do, I think, hopefully not always, but they can become you know, best friends or cheerleaders or confidants or some, some format of that where the relationship shifts. It's so interesting to, to live that dynamic. And then there's another dynamic shift when really they need more care from you. Like it's a funny circle of life where I saw it with my grandfather as well before he passed away, where he was always taking care of me as a young child. But then near the end of his life, the past, the last, let's say five years, it was all sort of us taking care of him and this sort of real shift in in the dynamic there so it's so fascinating because your relationships I think that's I'm fascinated by relationships too um people but you know it's interesting to see how somebody can go from being a caregiver to cared for and how you can have multiple relationships with the same person I mean I see the same thing with people that are married for a very long time you go you have these seasons of marriage and it really it's the same person for 20 30 40 50 years but you have very, very distinct seasons of the marriage with kids or um, as you retire. And so it's, I find the seasons of life to be a fascinating concept because the way we relate to the people that have been there for so long changes, but it's the same person, right? It's still your dad yeah. or it's still your mom. It's still, so that's a funny thing. Yeah, it changes. It's, um, relationships are a funny thing. Yeah, and it's nice. I think that's the kind of, I mean, you know, like Jordan Peterson will talk about the, how marriage is important. And you've got people saying marriage is sort of out of style, if you will. Um, but I think that that's what's so fascinating about being in a relationship for a long time, any romantic or otherwise, is that you see that evolution of a person. Whereas in, if the culture or if someone's preference is always switching from person to person because they don't fit the mold or they don't, they're not quite perfect or they don't do this particular thing, not saying to stay in a relationship that's not serving you. But I think it's really interesting to look at if, if you can weather the storms of life, that connection becomes so different and just a deeper multifaceted connection that's only able to be developed over time and across multiple experiences. Beautifully put. <laughs> I don't know where I'm, I'm going with this. But I'm the guest, but I think is... that's probably the, the little preview you should put. The, because that's beautiful. <laughs> oh. I have a hard, I always have a hard time saying bye. I always have a hard time with endings, but I, I really hope you'll be back again soon. It means so much to have you here. It really does. And it's been my absolute joy to have you with me this morning. So thank you. No, it's, it's honestly, it's been an absolute pleasure. And like I said, I, I, you know, I didn't think I liked doing interviews, but it hasn't felt like one. And it's, it's been a really fun 
hour and a half. I didn't even realize the time went by that quick. So that just goes to show it's, uh, it's amazing. So thank you so much. And thanks for the opportunity to sort of let me speak to a sort of whole new audience.